Financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Roger Wiegand, who publishes Trader Tracks, and Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? We have also a one-time special introductory offer to all three newsletters, mine included, and uh, you can learn more about that by calling my assistant, Claudio Bossi, or in his absence uh, today and the rest of this week, or at least for the next couple of days, my wife, Teresa Taylor, at 718-457-1426. That's 718-457-1426. Or you can go to our website at miningstocks.com to learn more about those publications and to take advantage of this special offer. As we've Noted uh, frequently, Chen Lin in particular has had a phenomenal track record. He's taken $5,400 of his uh, of investment in 2003, turned it well over to a mil- well over a million dollars right now, uh, as of the at least the end of last month. Uh, so Chen is providing a lot of those insights uh, for you on this show. Chen will not be with us today, uh, but I'm going to have an old friend, um, I shouldn't say old, a longtime friend, Al Corlin with me. He's going to be here in just a couple of minutes uh, to fill in for Chen today. Um, of course, uh, we want to thank our corporate investors, or cor- I should say our corporate sponsors, for making this show uh, uh, financially possible. And our sponsors for the first hour today are Crocodile Gold, Palangio Exploration, Uranium Energy, Barkerville Gold, American Bonanza, and Coral Gold. And also, a big thanks to each of you for listening to this show, only because more and more of you are listening. Uh, is this show now, by a long shot, the number one show on the Voice America business channel? So thanks to all of you for listening. Uh, Today, our main, inve- our main uh, guest is, is going to be Ian McDonald. Uh, Ian will be with us to talk about the, uh, the gold markets. Ian has been in the gold markets for a long time. Uh, he uh, has been involved in uh, Dubai, where he uh, worked uh, for some official interests in Dubai. Uh, and we're going to uh, ask Ian, who's buying and who's selling gold these days? You know, the sellers, uh, where are they coming from with gold? Uh, with the exception of today, gold is down quite a bit. But gold has been on a tear. So, you know, for every buyer, there's a seller. Well, who's selling gold? 
at this point in time when, when obviously the price is rising so uh, significantly. Also, we'd like to recall uh, something that Adrian Douglas told us a few weeks ago, that for every 43 ounces of gold that are being traded on the markets, there's only one ounce of physical gold available to meet those trades if and when the people holding those, buy con those long contracts want to take delivery of gold. Well, what could happen to the price of gold if all of a sudden a number of people a number of those uh, traders who are normally just flipping paper over decide that they want to own the real thing. What would happen then to the price of gold? We're going to get Ian McDonald's opinion on that as well. Also, we have a second major guest today, and that is Mike Larson of the Weiss Group. And Mike will be here to discuss the housing markets as well as the interest rate markets and, and the economy in general. And we're looking forward to talking uh, to Mike Larson as well. Uh, and uh, to help me wrap up today's show, we've got Roger Wiegand uh, as, a, as a usual guest of this show. Roger will be with us to talk about uh, what's on his mind with respect to the gold markets, I'm sure. I think Roger also wants to focus a little bit on the uh, inflation-deflation question, which is a never-ending issue on this show. We talk about it every time, and I expect we'll get into it with both our special guests as well today. Well, as I mentioned, Chen Lin will not be with me today. Uh, but I'm very, very pleased uh, to have uh, Al Corlin with me. Al, uh, Al is with, uh, has, has been a host um, of a radio show uh, called the Corlin Economics Report. I've been uh, privileged to be a guest on Al's show many times in the past. Um, and so uh, we're going to be talking to Al in just a moment. I should also mention, I forgot to mention, that we're going to have Mike Hoffman immediately after this segment. Mike Hoffman, he's the president and CEO of Crocodile Gold. Uh, they are a sponsor of this show. They're also a company that I've recommended in my newsletter uh, and one that I own personally, I should add. Uh, Mike Hoffman and Crocodile Gold seem to be turning the corner now. They had some initial startup problems, which is usual for new mining companies, uh, but they're on and upwards, it looks like, to meeting their production targets of upwards to around 90,000 or 85,000 ounces this year. actually think they could uh, exceed that, given the, uh, the track record more recently. It looks like they're really getting things back online, uh, back on track again. Well, uh, let's go right to Al Corlin, who I believe is with me right now, uh, somewhere out on the West Coast the United States. Al, are you there? Jay, I'm here. We're doing a bit of a remote. I'm on my way to the Silver Summit where I'm going to be speaking along with uh, your colleague and my colleague and friend Roger Wiegand. So looking forward to going over there. We'll have a good time. There's going to be a lot of very, very interesting people there. Jay, I want to congratulate you on two things. Uh, number one, congratulations on the fact that your show is the number one show uh, on uh, uh, Voice America. That's no small task. You're doing a great job, and I am very, very proud, A, to have you as a friend, uh, and B, to give you whatever help I can to, uh, to handle this. You've certainly done a yeoman's job in terms of helping me over the last 10 or 12 years uh, on my show, and I certainly I, I, I appreciate that almost as much as I appreciate your friendship. <laughs> Well, that's very kind of you, Al. I appreciate all that, all that you've done for me. We've worked together and uh, done some videos in the past. I've been a frequent guest on your radio show. I've gotten so darn busy in recent times that I haven't been on perhaps as often as I might have otherwise been. But you've uh, been a great teacher for me, too. I mean, you, um, I guess I probably sat there next to you and watched you on the radio, and that's probably been a big encouragement and has helped me as well. So uh, I, I'm really glad to have you with me, Al. We, it's long overdue. I should have had you on before now, I suppose. Um, anyway, you and I are not too far apart age-wise, I dare say, without giving any secrets away. We're, neither of us are, I think it's safe to say, spring chickens any longer. 
Um, not spring chickens, not spring chickens, but let's say mature adults. <laughs> okay. There you go. All right. All right. Well, anyway, the point I was getting at is that you and I have been around along long enough to remember the last bull market that we had in, in gold and precious metals, that being in the late uh, in the 1970s, the late 1970s. How would you compare the current bull market with that one, Al? I think it's a lot more substantial, Jay, and, and I, I have actually uh, given this more than just a passing thought. The reason I think it's a lot more substantial uh, is, number one, because of a lot of the things I've learned from you, uh, and, you know, let's just kind of start rattling some of this stuff off. Back in the late 70s, uh, there was a huge bull market in gold. Uh, gold in inflation-related dollars hasn't reached the peak yet that it was back then. But back then, the price of gold really, I think, was was influenced almost exclusively by one factor, and, and that was uh, inflation. Uh, I mean, I remember back in those days, Kathy and I bought our first, our second house, I guess it was, and, and our mortgage rates, um, our mortgage interest on that house was somewhere around 15% or thereabouts. So people basically were looking back in those days for a place to, you know, a store of value. No question about that. Well, today... There are many, many other factors uh, in, involved. Number one, you've got some, in terms of international political turmoil, that certainly is there in spades if you just consider nothing more than the Middle East. Uh, if you look at economic turmoil domestically, that's there in spades. If you look at economic turmoil internationally, that's there in spades. If you look at the debt level, uh, either on the in the U.S., either on the federal government level, the state government level, or the personal level, it's huge. It's absolutely huge. You know, we've got a we have a deficit in the U.S. right now of over 13 trillion dollars. It's the perfect storm for gold, in my opinion, not just for one reason, but for a variety of reasons. I mean, and I learned a lot of that from you, Mr. T. Well, indeed. I mean, we have a very unstable monetary regime right now with uh, printing endless amounts of money, as you point out. And, and the big question sure. in my mind, Al, as you know, and we've hashed this over on your radio shows many times in the past, sure. is which way are sure. we going to go? Are we going to hyperinflate or are we going to deflate? You know, And I think the jury's still out on that. What are your thoughts? I agree 100%. You know, I, I read your newsletter every week, Jay, and I know that you and I have talked in the past uh, about the deflation issue. That certainly is a big issue. Uh, again, neither one, neither you nor I are are talking about uh, you know totally, totally uh, not considering inflation. I read something interesting over the weekend though that that gives a lot of credence to your deflation argument, and that is, uh, look what happened in Japan. Uh, you know, our economy uh, is very, very similar to Japan of the 90s. Uh, and the deflation that occurred there uh, certainly, I think, could occur here if the economic policies aren't, uh, you know, very, very perfect. And, and I'll tell you, I don't think our economic policies are very perfect. I don't. I have nothing against President Obama personally and his and his team, uh, but I sure, but, but but I don't believe they're going in the right direction, Jay. Well, it's certainly not free market economics, that's for sure, Al. It's the antithesis of that. And if you believe, as I do, that free markets are the best way to manage uh, economics, the best way of, of allocating scarce resources, then hardly we're hardly going the right way with this democratic regime. But neither were we going the right way with the previous Republican regime, as far as I'm concerned. Al, I want to just ask you to talk a little bit about your radio show, the Corlin Economics Report. What is the objective of your show, Al, if you might just share that with our listeners? The objective of our show uh, is simply to 
allow our listeners to look at the movie screen of life on the biggest screen possible. Let me tell you what I mean by that. We take issues, uh, both financial issues uh, and political issues, and we attempt very, very diligently to show both sides of the story. When you show both sides of the story, I believe that then people are in a better position to make up their own minds as to what action they want to take. I don't think people are getting both sides of the story in the conventional press, Jay, and I don't think they're getting the, the uh, both sides of the story uh, in the electronic media. I really don't. As much as I enjoy watching Fox, it's pretty skewed. MSNBC, it's pretty skewed. What we do on our program is we take issues that are very, very pertinent uh, to the well-being of, uh, we believe, the well-being of our listeners, and then we give both sides hard facts, not simply emotions, not opinions, but hard facts. And that way, people can make up their own minds to, uh, as to what they want to do. And, you know, as you've been very accurate in the past, we've been very accurate in the past with some of our uh, uh, predictions. Al, could you give our listeners uh, maybe a, a, a short list of some of the guests that you have uh, on a, not necessarily on a regular basis, but some of your guests on your show so they would know who they might hear if they tune in? Well, sure. I mean, it's, it's a lot of the same people who are on your show. Uh, Congressman Rod Paul from Texas uh, is, is a guest on our show. His chief of staff, Jeff Deist, is a guest on our program. Of course, if you look at newsletter writers, we've got, uh, got Doug Casey, we've got John Kaiser, we've got Greg McCoach. Uh, Roger Wiegand does, uh, helps us out considerably on, uh, on the program. In terms of uh, best-selling authors, we have Bud Conrad of Casey Research, uh, John Perkins, who wrote Confessions of an Economic Hitman, uh, the fellow who wrote uh, Feature for Jekyll Island, uh, thanks to an introduction for you, was on our program. So it's, our, our guests, I have to say, are very, very similar to, uh, to the roster of guests that you have. I understand that uh, perhaps my my partner here, Roger Wiegand, provides a daily uh, market summary of some sort for you. Roger does. You? Yep, Roger okay. does. Roger does a daily market summary. Uh, he um, began doing that about oh probably a month or so ago. Uh, Roger also is a frequent contributor to uh, the editorial uh, on our uh, on our show, and uh, he's doing a great job. He's thoroughly enjoying it. And uh, I'm, I'm happy to have him as a contributor. Roger's uh, a very good guy. Can you uh, tell our listeners where they can tune into your show? What's the uh, what's the address? Okay, num number of ways, three ways. Number one, we are on the Business Talk Radio Network. Uh, some of the larger markets that we that the show airs in would be New York, Chicago, uh, San Diego, Las Vegas, etc. Uh, we're on about 35 stations there. We're on the Genesis Network. Uh, in both Genesis and Business Talk Radio Network also uh, stream the show live. And then they can also go to our website, which is www.kereport.com, uh, and the show is archived there. Uh, as, interestingly enough, we have a link on our website, Jay, to, uh, uh, to the website where folks can listen to your show. Okay, and, and can they also... And, and can they also get to Business Talk Radio and Genesis Network as well through your website? Uh, yes, they can. Okay, a okay. so, so they can just that. go to your website again is the www.kereport.com. And then they can hook up to all those other things that you offer as well. Sure. All right, well, thank you, Al. I really appreciate you sharing your 
uh, your skills and your uh, uh, ideas with our listeners today, and I hope we can do this again sometime soon. So uh, thanks again, and, and happy journey, happy and safe journey up there to the Silver Summit. I'm envious. I wish I could be with you. That's one I've never attended, and I understand it's one of the best ones. So all the best, and say hello to Roger, uh, Roger Wiegand as well. It's a great show. Give Teresa a hug. Tell her we love her. Thanks for the opportunity, Jay. Okay, Al, thank you very much. Well, folks, don't go away because we're going to have Mike Hoffman, the president and CEO of Crocodile Gold, coming up right after the commercial break. Don't go away. We'll be right back. You'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer-long by 20-kilometer-wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open-pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. American Bonanza Gold's project, located in Arizona, is scheduled for production in 2010. American Bonanza Gold announced the positive results of its recent feasibility study at its 100% owned Copperstone Gold Mine. The mine is estimated to produce an average of 45,000 ounces of gold annually. At the current spot gold price, this will result in an IRR of 120%. Join the gold bull market. Invest in American Bonanza Gold. Visit the website at AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Millrock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Millrock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Tech, Ballet, Inmet, Kinross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Millrock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. Revolution Resources Corp. is a publicly trading exploration company that trades under the symbol RV on the TSX Exchange. Led by an experienced management team with a track record for discoveries, Revolution has initiated drilling on the company's newly acquired Champion Hills Gold Project in North Carolina. Revolution is focused on making a world-class discovery in an established gold belt, and with over $5 million in the Treasury, Revolution is effectively positioned to do so. Please visit www.revolutionresourcescorp.com for further information. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm here again with Mike Hoffman. He's the president and CEO of Crocodile Gold Corp. It's a company that's a sponsor for both hours of this show, and the company's shares are currently are also a current recommendation of my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Crocodile Gold trades on the Toronto Exchange under this ticker CRK, and on the uh, U.S. over-the-counter market under the ticker CROCF. Crocodile is currently producing gold from three mines in Australia, and in my view, uh, has tremendous exploration potential, which is really a reason that I've picked this company as a leading Progress A company in my newsletter and Progress A companies. For those of you who are not familiar with my letter, uh, is a notation for companies that are in production as opposed to those who are exploring and developing mining projects. Well, Mike, welcome again to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, thank you very much for having me on the show again, Jay. Really pleased to have you. You know, it's especially good to have companies uh, on my show and sponsors who are having success in the field, success in exploration, and success in production. And you, uh, since we last spoke, have had a lot of progress on both fronts, which I suppose is one of the reasons that your shares are up very significantly. Last time we talked, at the end of September, they were around a dollar fifteen to dollar twenty. Last I looked here this week, they were in the dollar forty-five to dollar fifty range. Not too bad for two or three weeks or three or four weeks, whatever it was, since. Since we last spoke. Uh, to be fair, of course, you had some startup glitches, as almost all companies' uh, mining projects have, uh, and your production levels were not were a bit disappointing to start with, but it looks to me as if you're back on track, and I'm saying that on the basis of an October 6th press release in which you announced that your company had poured 10,000 ounces of gold during September 2010. Perhaps you could tell our listeners a little bit uh, about how you've managed to pull your company back into production in the line of production that you had earlier sort of projected. Well, well, the big thing I think uh, over the last four months is uh, the uh, mine has been very stable. Uh, the recoveries have uh, increased significantly where they're over 90%. The throughput is stabilized. It's very close to uh, ultimate mill capacity. Um, we've made a number of changes in the mines itself. We've, uh, we're mining more high-grade underground ore, which helps the overall grade. Uh, we've increased the stripping ratio um, in the pit on a temporary basis to uh, be able to access more higher-grade ore. So, so what ends up happening is we're milling more high-grade ore from the underground, and we're also milling more high-grade ore from, from the open pit and not mining as much uh, lower-grade ore. I've been very careful about the blend of hard and soft ores. Um, obviously, we've got a very stable uh, production team that's uh, making some great strides and incremental improvements on cost. So <clears throat> the big thing is, is 
you know, all that hard work is finally starting to pay dividends. Um, we had predicted September was going to be about 9,000 ounces. Uh, very pleasantly surprised when, uh, you know, we actually produced in September about 9,800 and poured 10,000. Um, but really, that was a culmination of a lot of hard work. What I'd expect is for the remainder of the year to meet our target of 85,000 ounces, we've already poured close to 60. We've got to produce 25,000 ounces over the remaining three months of this year. I'd expect our investors to see anywhere between 8,500 to 9,500 ounces a month for the remaining three months of the year. You know, it's, it's going to vary a little bit depending on, you know, when the high grade comes and, and that kind of thing. But, you know, we might have some pleasant surprises again, like uh, we saw in uh, September. So, it, you know, it's, it's like anything else. If you do the hard work, um, you know, eventually you're going to get some good surprises too. Yeah, that's really uh, very pleasing, I guess, probably though it, it really does work for companies to sort of under-promise and, over, and over-produce or over-achieve, and certainly that seems to be what you're doing now. And I would say, wonder though, the big question in my mind is, you were expecting 9,000 ounces, you got 10,000 ounces. Is, if you, could you explain why that is and um, you know, why you were better than you expected, and is this something that, might, that, that investors might hope for? Uh, certainly you don't count on anything in this business, but hope for uh, those kind of su- pleasant surprises in the future. Well, it almost a lot of things went uh, really well in September. Our budget recovery is 90%. We ended up doing 94% recovery. Mm. Um, we ended up mining a little more higher-grade underground. Well, not really a lot more on higher-grade underground ore, but really the open pit ore was a lot higher-grade. And uh, I think, you know, put it all together – the throughput was there. Uh, it was a really nice month, and it, it was sort of funny because as we were pouring throughout the month, every time we did a pour, the inventory didn't really change. We said, geez, uh, you know, this is looking to be a pretty good month. There's a lot more gold there than we thought. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you're, uh, so your grades, I mean, it's not insignificant to go from a 94% recovery as opposed to 90%, and you had mentioned a moment ago about being very careful about the mixes of ore that you put in. Did that have something to do with it or just some... Oh. some well, that's right. It, for us, if you if you take some of the softer uh, oxide ore and, and the harder sulfide ore, um, you blend that. That uh, that helps both on the recovery and it also helps on throughput rate. We actually had, uh, I believe it was nine days of over 7,000 tons a day. So if you translated that to a month, that would be over 210,000 tons a month, whereas we did 185,000 tons of throughput in September. So mm-hmm. um, there's some things we're doing that, um, you know, if we could sustainably produce over 7,000 tons a month, we, again, just from a throughput point of view, could get more ounces each month. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's where, I mean, those are... A lot of really good things, yeah. Those are the things that happen, I guess, once you start to, you know, when you start a mining project, there are always glitches and things, and you start to, you, you work hard and you improve on those things little by little, and here you are from a 90 to 94% more throughput and everything. This is very typical of successful mining operations, but, you know, Mike, the thing that really has uh, excited me about your company, and one of the reasons that I have, the main reason that I have you as a, uh, a top pick in my newsletter, is not just because of the 85,000 ounces that you'll produce this year, although I find you know, positive cash flows coming from production to be very, very uh, important in, in building a company, uh, but it is the exploration potential uh, that you have that is really very exciting. And I, and I note on October 14th you had a press release that talked about uh, significant resource increases in the Pine Creek project. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that, that has really got us excited at Pine Creek. 
we actually went from an indicated resource of about 70,000 ounces to 290,000 ounces. And, and what that means for, for your listeners, measured and indicated resources are required. They have a higher confidence level, and you could take those, and once you do mine plans and, and look at metallurgical um, factors and, and also the economics, you could bring those into reserves. So we don't officially carry any reserves at all in the Pine Creek area. Uh, we're just in the process of doing a little metallurgical work. Um, I'd expect shortly to bring a fair bit of this material into reserves. Not only that, we still have another 183,000 ounces of inferred resources at Pine Creek. And what's significant about this uh, Pine Creek area, it's within 15 kilometers of the current mill. So right now we're transporting our ore 90 kilometers. It's costing us $125 an ounce. Being 15 kilometers, it probably only costs us maybe 15 to $20 an ounce. Mm. So it's got the opportunity, everything else being equal, of lower operating cost. But some of these pits will be very attractive pits because they've got very low strip ratio and very decent grades. So it's uh, we, we're in the uh, middle of uh, permitting these. We should have the permits uh, by uh, late November, early December. And we'd expect uh, early... Uh, in 2011 to bring one of these pits into production. But this is just the Pine Creek area. We also have the Union Reef area, which is right at, right where the mill is. Mm-hmm. And we expect to uh, um, show our investors a significant increase in the resources there. We're just currently working through that. Uh, hopefully within the next few weeks, we'll be putting a press release out in, in regards to Union Reef. So lots of good news coming out. Um, we're putting a lot of effort into up- updating our resources. We'll also have a significant resource increase at the Cosmo Halley area. We've been drilling there all year. Um, that that area is very exciting. And really, Cosmo is the crown jewel of our assets. Uh, the, just Cosmo on its own, when it's in full production, will produce 100,000 ounces a year. Hmm. It's a very large underground mine, big widths, better grades. Um, cash cost just from Cosmo is 450 to $500 an ounce. So, hmm. so it's going to help drop our overall cash cost per ounce in the future. So we're, we're very excited about this development. Um, it'll be ready in full production mid-2011. So, um, you know, when you talk about, you know, the expiration upside is one thing, and, and we believe that that's uh, going to help us uh, produce a lot more gold in the future. <laughs> but it's also going to help our production profile in the near term by mid-2011. So... Hmm. You know, as you mentioned, 85,000 ounces doesn't seem like a lot, but all of a sudden next year we should be around 150,000 and the year after over 200,000 ounces. So, Okay, I was going to ask you about that, and uh, so I'm glad you, you brought it up. So uh, what sort of cost profile, uh, to the extent you're able to give us a range perhaps over those years from 85,000 to 150 to 200,000, do you have some economies of scale that bring the cost per ounce down? Uh, or what sort of cost structure, if you could just give our listeners some sense of what you're expecting? Yeah, and, and you hit the nail right on the head. Um, you know, with economies of scale, the more ounces you produce, that basically you have certain fixed costs, like, you know, some of your management, uh, your accounting, that kind of thing, are, are fixed costs that you have to pay whether you're producing 85,000 or 200,000 ounces. So you spread that out over a lot more ounces, your cost per ounce goes down. Um, the real key there is we're going to be sending in the future a lot higher grade to the mill, which will then help, you know, lower our milling cost. Um, mm-hmm. And then also, you know, the mining cost would be lower. So what I'd expect is when we produce 200,000 ounces, it'll be approximately 650 an ounce, U.S. 650 an ounce. Mm-hmm. Uh, next year, we're targeting about $750 an ounce. 
And this year, to be honest, it's been a little bit higher. It's been over $900 an ounce. Mm-hmm. Our target is to try to get that below $800 an ounce by the end of the year. We're going to work very hard uh, on that goal. But it is related a lot to the number of ounces you produce each month. Sure. Well, the $1,300 plus these days, uh, even $900 cost gives you some nice cash flow uh, that you can use then internally uh, to uh, to grow your company as opposed to going out and issuing shares. I think that's something that listeners and investors need to keep, uh, keep in mind because this is one of, the, one of the killers for exploration companies. But you're in a, a producer now with cash flow, and I think that's very, very, very important as long as you're a successful producer. I noticed, uh, before I let you go, Mike, I want to just uh, bring up one other headline here, and this has to do with your exploration, but you have a joint venture partner, uh, Thundalera, uh, and you had a press release talking about uh, almost five grams per ton over 12 meters in a project uh, there. Could you care to comment on that just briefly? Sure. Um, Thundalara is a joint venture partner we have in the Burnside area. Um, they're a uranium exploration company. Um, they're earning a 70% interest on the uranium rights on our property, and then we'll retain a 30% interest. We don't have to fund any of this uranium exploration, but one of the added benefits we get is Thundalara when they drill their holes, are obligated to uh, assay them for gold and base metals. Mm. So we were very pleased that on one of these holes, they actually had detected this this gold. And in that area, uh, we do not have any gold results. But what made it very interesting is once we saw that they had hit that gold, we actually did a little bit of work and seeing where it was, where you know nearby deposits were, and it looks like it's on that North Point Princess Louise trend. And that shows up on the geophysics. So what it really means, North Point Princess Louise, we thought is about a three to four kilometer trend. Now it's looking like this is more like a seven, eight kilometer trend. Wow. And hitting this his gold, obviously there's a lot more work to fill all that in. But it just goes to show you we have a, a lot of upside here. Um, I think we're going to be around a long time. Uh, we just have to uh, systematically explore and, and develop and produce from this area, and I think we'll be very successful. I would I would guess uh, as you're able to produce and if you can continue to produce and meet your projections that uh, the market is going to price your shares higher and I would also expect as you continue to show exploration results and increase your reserves and resources the market is going to price you higher as well most likely all other things being equal uh, what do you uh, when you you will be having I guess uh, ongoing exploration results coming out now you've got an ongoing exploration program I guess yeah, I think what you'll expect to see over the coming months, um, we're still sitting on some results from the Cosmo uh, Underground uh, that will be press released shortly. We still have some open pit Howley drill results. Uh, you'll see a resource estimate from Union Reef. You'll see reserve estimates from Union Reef and Pine Creek. You'll see quarterly results coming probably mid-November. Um, and obviously towards the end of the year, an overall resource and reserve increase. It could be December, it could be January. So there's going to be a fair bit of news coming out. Um, obviously, you know, we're going to continue to drill here and there, and we'll be putting those results out, out as we go. So there should be a fair bit of news. Um, we've been really pleased that over the last month we've been trading a lot of volume. Um, the other, I think last week it was, we were almost 4 million shares a day. We've averaged over a million shares a day throughout this year. So it's a very liquid stock, mm-hmm. trades very well. But I think what's what's happened is, you know, investors are starting to recognize that, you know, we've got a lot more stability in regards to the production. We're starting to hit targets, um, you know, and, and sustainably hit targets. And I think people are saying, well, you know, the, we see the value proposition. 
the risk is largely behind us, let's let's start buying in the stock. And I think that's why the dramatic increase in volume. Mike, I wouldn't expect you to be unbiased uh, in answering my next question, and we we, uh, we do need to leave you go now here in just a couple of minutes. But um, how do you see your your shares price now vis-a-vis other hundred thousand ounce per year producers? Um, I think uh, you know if you actually look really hard at some of these other producers, and you know I would consider our peers, you know, with somewhat similar resource size, infrastructure, mm-hmm. everything else. Um, you know, I, I ask investors to go look at our presentation on our website, www.crockgold.com, and you'll see we sit right at the bottom in terms of valuation compared to some of these other producers. So without a doubt, I have a bias. Um, mm-hmm. But what I, one thing I'd stress is I am a significant shareholder in my own right, and mm-hmm. I have yet to sell a share. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a believer that we're undervalued, and, you know, I guess I have my money where my mouth is. <laughs> yeah, Mike, I think that may be one of the most important things you told our listeners all day, because I think that is uh, is not always the case with with mining companies. A lot of times the uh, the mining, you know, the, the people that are running the companies may be more interested in the paycheck than the long-term uh, um, growth of their, of their company. So I want to thank you for passing that on. And your website, again, is crockgold.com, www.crockgold.com. Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, thank you, Mike, uh, for spending time with us again and updating our listeners uh, on your company. It really is an exciting story. I look forward to talking to you again sometimes, uh, sometime in the near future. But, folks, don't go away uh, because I'm going to be right back uh, with Ian McDonald. He's a very experienced gold trader and market analyst. He's been around a long time, knows a lot about what's going on internationally in the gold markets. Who's buying gold these days? Who's drying, driving it to these record heights almost every day? Where are the sellers? Are there any left? These are the questions we're going to ask uh, Ian McDonald when we come back, so don't go away. We'll be right back with Ian. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by. Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Brigus is also advancing its gold fields project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. Revolution Resources Corp. is a publicly trading exploration company that trades under the symbol RV on the TSX exchange. Led by an experienced management team with a track record for discoveries, Revolution has initiated drilling on the company's newly acquired Champion Hills Gold Project in North Carolina. Revolution is focused on making a world-class discovery in an established gold belt, and with over $5 million in the Treasury, Revolution is effectively positioned to do so. Please visit www.revolutionresourcescorp.com for further information. 
As regular listeners to this show know, I am very bullish on gold and especially gold mining stocks. One of my favorite gold mining companies is Metanor Resources, traded Toronto and the Pink Sheets. This is a new gold producer. It is using cash flows from its Barry Mine in Quebec to finance growth of that mine and to put the world-famous Quebec Bachelor Lake Mine back into production. This stock has been recommended by my newsletter because I do believe it holds extraordinary upside price potential with relatively low levels of risk. Visit Metanor's website at metanor.ca or subscribe to my newsletter for more information. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech stocks at www.miningstocks.com now back to our program welcome back to turning hard times into good times i am your host jay taylor and i'm really pleased to have our first our first featured guest of today ian mcdonald back with me again on this show mr mcdonald has worked as executive director of the dubai multi-commodities center uh, where he launched a $200 million Sharia compliant asset management company for the government of Dubai. Prior to that, Ian worked uh, in the precious metals division of Commerce Bank, uh, Credit Suisse, and Billiton. Uh, he currently serves as the uh, advisory board on the advisory board of Gold Bullion International. It's a firm that is uh, the first company to exclusively offer the wealth management industry access to most secure and transparent process for acquiring, transporting, and storing gold bullion uh, for the more affluent retail clients. Well, welcome, Ian, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Good afternoon, Jay. Really uh, pleased to have you with me again. Uh, I would like to start our conversation by asking you about uh, the Gold Bullion International. You're working with them. Uh, exactly what is this firm looking to do? Well, essentially, uh, Gold Bullion International are looking to uh, service the, uh, um, the high net worth industry, institutional clients uh, to go out and procure and store gold in a safe and secure manner. And uh, I must say they're doing it in a very uh, innovative way, um, and uh, they're using a lot of technology to be able to achieve that process. And uh, certainly I would encourage uh, people to look at their website, bullioninternational.com, should you require any additional information. Oh, excellent. Okay. BullionInternational.com. Excellent. All right. Well, the last time we talked was uh, November 29th of last year, and at that time, the gold price was $1,163. At least that was the PM fix close that day. We're now at $1,330. We're seeing a bit of a correction, 43 bucks or so down today. Uh, what is your sense? we got a little further to go on the downside here, Ian, do you think? Oh, it's certainly possible uh, that we could see several days of correction. One really never knows, but I, and I, I, I think gold was just doing too much too soon. And I think many of us in the marketplace were surprised how far gold had gone without any type of correction. You know. And it's good and it's healthy to see a correction, see where the main uh, buying comes in again, and particularly the physical buying, because this is always 
the benchmark, and it has been the physical market that has really been supporting this rally. Wow. Very interesting that you say that, and I want to get to uh, sort of this uh, physical versus paper issue in a little bit. But uh, let's ask, uh, who do you think, or who do you think the, the, where is this physical buying coming from in your view? It's very, very broad-based and general, and it's pretty much uh, global. Uh, countries like India and China and uh, Southeast Asia in general are buying uh, on a steady uh, basis just to diversi- uh, diversify themselves away from the U.S. dollar. But we're also seeing institutional money and high net worth uh, people coming in to buy gold now, um, which I honestly haven't seen since back in the 70s. The 1970s, when I, I guess you first moved to the United States and started to, uh, to work in this area, wasn't it? That's right. And, uh, you know, the, the, when we came off the gold standard, and of course the fireworks uh, began, because up until then, you know, foreign exchange markets, um, particularly the dollar, the pound, and the Deutschmark, who is no longer around, were very, very stable in those days. Well, we had, uh, certainly we had a, a boring gold market until 1971, or actually it started a little before that as the, the fixed $35 rate didn't make any sense in economic terms anymore, and, and there was pressure on the markets, and then ultimately, of course, Nixon defaulted, caused the U.S. to default on uh, on our obligation to pay other countries uh, uh, an ounce of gold for every $35 they presented to us. And, of course, that has really made life a lot more interesting, but also has been, I think, very destabilizing in the foreign currency markets. Would you agree? Oh, it, it, it certainly has, because you know every country has the same problem. They keep issuing debt and just continue and continue, and there's nothing behind it. And you know, sooner or later, although you know, the IMF have stepped in with Greece and Ireland and a few other countries, countries will have to default on their debt. Um, I see no other way out of this mess. Um, oh, partic- um, particularly as a country like Greece or Ireland cannot devalue their currency to, sort of, to escape from this trap. Mm-hmm. So they're going to default, uh, I guess, I guess in, that, in their case, they're going to default, just not pay their debts, and there's going to be a lot of bankruptcies and uh, I mean, uh, since they can't, they can't print money themselves because they're part of the European Union or the euro, they can't print themselves as the United States can and seems to be willing to now print at uh, infinite amounts of money to try to inflate its debt away. Well, and of course, this is what's scaring the world right now. You know, and one thing is very different about the 70s and 80s is the power of the Internet now. Uh, foreign investors in in countries like China and so on, are very, very well up- updated in what's happening uh, here in the United States. And when I was living overseas in the Middle East, I was surprised how well informed the average citizen was uh, in these countries. And uh, the number one country they tend to follow is the United States. And trying to explain why we've got the printing presses out and how we're printing all of this money was a uh, very tough thing to defend, believe me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, indeed. So people are aware now, and it's not just the mainstream media. It's the sort of fringe internet uh, people, and I guess you got to be careful about who you're listening to and who you believe. But nonetheless, uh, the establishment, the status quo, uh, isn't the only game in town these days. 
No, uh, you know, obviously people are looking for alternative investments now, and you know the uh, and you know trying to inflate your way out of a situation has never ever worked. Um, this is one of the big issues uh, you know most countries are running into now, and uh, certainly you know every country I know, and it doesn't matter if it's Euro, it's of USA. Or Japan, you know, they all want devaluation, uh, and or as uh, some of our um, politicians in this country uh, politely ask another country to uh, revalue and put their currencies up. So, in other words, the dollar devalues, mm-hmm. um, and you know, the, the expectation is that this will get us out of the current financial mess, but it actually, it will not. It might, uh, in fact, some people think, including yours truly, that it could dig us deeper into 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 the problem. I'm afraid you, you could well be right on the, on that one. Until we see some sense of returning to a conservative value, in when I say conservative, I'm talking about conservative spending. You mm-hmm. know, don't um, you know, spend more than you take in. You know, right. They've got to control the size of the, the government and the and. It's what is quite interesting, Jay, and I think I mentioned it the last time I was on your program. Um, everybody's forgotten why the central banks uh, hold gold, and you know, mm-hmm. one of the reasons uh, central banks hold gold is because politicians historically have never ever been able to control their spending habits, and you know, here we are today in 2010. We're, we're no different. And uh, you know, one thing, I was just looking up a couple of facts and figures, and one thing I found uh, quite amazing, is, and it's hard to believe, that uh, 30 years ago, um, gold was the dominant holding in central banks. In fact, it, it accounted for almost 60% of their um, official reserves, and the um, foreign exchange only accounted for about uh, 40%. Wow. By 1990... That had reversed dramatically. Uh, the, uh, the amount of gold in under it had, it had been under um, reserve management had dropped to 15 percent, from 80 to 15, wow. and uh, foreign exchange had gone up to 80 percent. And of hmm. course, you know that meant. And this, however, I think is now starting to change. In fact, there's some strong evidence it's changed. But what we are seeing, in effect, is a failed policy by the central banks of the world, particularly when it comes to gold. They got it mm-hmm. dead wrong. Well, the Western banks have, and I and I would like to just ask you, though, you mentioned who some of the buyers of gold are, and I think probably would be, you mentioned, uh, you know, India, China, Russia, some of those countries. Uh, the Western banks have been dishoarding, though, have they not? And... Um, and and I'd like to ask you a little bit about the Washington Agreement because I believe we're in the third Washington Agreement. Is that right? That is uh, right. And uh, quite what is happening to that is it's like uh, what's happening with our taxes next year. We don't know. And I, I think the same is going to be true of the uh, Washington Accord, which is essentially uh, the signatures, which is mainly Europe, uh, um, have been the largest suppliers of gold for well over a decade now, and uh, they were supplying more than 400 tons of, a year. But in the last one, uh, in sort of 12 to 18 months, 
been a distinct slowdown from the central banks in their sales. You know, occasionally we see a ton here or a ton there, or you know, but uh, the sales out of the central banks have really come to come to a trickle. What we are seeing are central banks buying. You know, the first gold um, the purchase was by India, which was a very substantial amount when the IMF um, decided to dump a lot of uh, gold onto the market uh, earlier this year as a part of the uh, uh, TARP uh, program. And uh, that 400 tons was just snapped up by other countries, India being the biggest benefactor. Well, you must be a bit surprised by this slowdown because the last time we talked, you were sort of predicting that uh, at that time, at least if I remember correctly, you were suggesting that the Washington or the, the central banks, the 19 signatories of the uh, Washington Agreement, might be selling very aggressively this year. And you, if I'm not mistaken, thought they might even sell something like 600 tons or maybe 400 tons, which was their allotment. In fact, uh, Adrian Douglas, who's been on this show and is a contributor to the Gold Antitrust Action People, I have a lot of confidence in Adrian's work personally. Adrian has gone back and, and confirms what you're saying about what's actually going on now that we're we're seeing something like um, a trickle in fact Ian uh, or Adrian has uh, suggested that there's only been something like six tons out of the 400 tons allotment that's been actually sold by Western Central banks so far this year does that sound right to you oh that sounds uh, very accurate to me and mm-hmm. I, I think the central banks are starting to realize they may have a failed policy on their hands and when I say failed policy that's the Western central banks, uh, mainly in Europe. Um, so far as I know, and you know, no, and it hasn't been proven yet, that the USA, other than the IMF gold, have, have, has not sold any gold yet. Mm-hmm. Yes, the IMF is selling, and, and in fact, um, uh, Adrian is talking about, uh, he says, so far the IMF has reported selling 222 tons. Uh, to central banks and 86.5 tons on the market for a total of 308 tons. Uh, that is the uh, the IMF, uh, according to Ian. And he's suggesting that um, it says there's never been an official statement, uh, but it generally it's generally assumed that the IMF gold sales are being made uh, with respect to the tonnage quota left under the CBGA. Um, well, what is going on with the IMF? Why is the IMF selling? Because the IMF, of course, I think is, is the creature of uh, the spoils of World War II, if you think about it. It's dominated by the United States and England. What, uh, what's in, why are they doing it? Well, <laughs> it's hard. You know, I'm not surprised the IMF is very tight-lipped because it's a very hard policy to defend. Um, uh, to the best of my knowledge, it's to... It's the welfare aid to African and other developing countries. So it's, it's a freebie, uh, but it's billions of dollars being just handed out uh, as a freebie. And uh, that was approved, obviously, by Washington earlier this year. Yeah, Washington has agreed to sell the gold, and um, you, you wonder why. In fact, I was listening to somebody on Thomas Keene's show on, the, uh, on Bloomberg, and they were talking about uh, some of the policies that are, that are coming out. Timothy Geithner recently now reiterating a uh, – and who believes this? I don't know who would believe this, that we are in favor of a strong dollar policy now all of a sudden. And uh, that rhetoric has sort of shifted around. We've been very silent about the United States strong dollar policy, which you used to hear a lot about from, from Robert Rubin in the old days. And 
and more recently even uh, Republican administrations. And this gentleman that was on Keene was suggesting that he doesn't think it's coming out of the, the White House, but probably out of an international uh, group uh, at the IMF or so. So I guess the IMF really represents a different uh, – doesn't necessarily inter- represent the interests of the United States, does it? Well, it definitely does not. In fact, uh, having dealt with many central banks, including the IMF, the policies tend to be a little to the left rather than to the center or to the right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I I used to ask them in the 80s and 90s, you know, why were they selling the gold? And it's simply because they had convinced themselves uh, gold was a worthless asset. And you know, this is why, and I, I'd like to remind people, why the central banks actually sold most of the gold when gold was only at $250 an ounce. And the U.S. Why is that? being the number one candidate. And why is that, Ian? I, I think it's largely ignorance uh, on their part and very poor uh, financial management. You know, they... Um, You've got to remember these decisions are made by people who really don't understand the financial markets. And, uh, you know, the IMF sales uh, was no different. You know, it had congressional approval. Um, you know, anybody in their right mind should have told the people, you know, the U.S. Congress, it is dumb and stupid to sell gold in this environment because gold is going to go up. You know, keep hold of your strong assets and get rid of your weak assets. Well, I have, a, I have an idea that many of those economists, those PhD economists in the prestigious institutions like the Federal Reserve and the IMF, have all been indoctrinated under Keynesian economics. And, of course, Keynes called gold the barbaric relic. Now, I'd like to quote Adrian Douglas and get your reaction to this. Adrian said uh, he, he said that the sale of gold no longer intimidates the markets uh, as they seem to have done in the past. And, he, and just to quote him, he says, the surreptitious way of selling it now must be viewed as signifying embarrassment from uh, about Western central bank stupidity. After all, during the first two central bank gold agreements, the signatory banks disposed of almost 4,500 tons of gold at an average price of less than $500 an ounce. Exact, uh, end of quote, exactly what you said. Now, with gold now $1,300 an ounce, uh, Adrian concludes uh, that many Western central banks now should be feeling more like the barbarous relics themselves. Would you agree with that? <laughs> I couldn't disagree with that. Uh, it's, uh, he is absolutely accurate there. I, I think the embarrassment factor, and but you know, I, I very often make a joke about, uh, as a central banker, you can always be wrong, get your market policies, your market decisions wrong, and you, know, you can sell the low and buy the high, and you can repeat uh, the process time and time again, and you still keep your job. Where if you live on and work on Wall Street, uh, you know, a couple of bad decisions, you're out. And, uh, you know, so it makes a, no- a whole nonsense of the process. Uh, Ian, you and I have been around, around long enough to remember 1971. Uh, I I think you have. I certainly have been around long enough. I was a young man then. I remember very clearly on August 15th, 1971, because I was following the gold markets then. I was very curious about what was going on. Vietnam, socialism in America. Politicians didn't want to raise taxes to pay for those things, so we issued debt. And de Gaulle said, take, you know, give me the real thing. I don't want any more of your paper. He said just what you said. Central banks should be asking for the strong asset, not the weak asset. 
De Gaulle asked for it. The United States told him to take a hike. Mr. Nixon did. And uh, the rest is history. We started to see huge amounts of debt creation over those years. We started to get ourselves in the heck of a mess that we're in now, in my view, because we went off the gold standard, because there was no discipline, not only for governments, but look at what the banks have done to get individuals into financial trouble as well. So now we're seeing, though, currency wars like we've never seen before, perhaps akin to what happened in the 1930s. Do you think it's possible, Ian, that we could be nearing a point in time in which there will be a major currency regime change, not, uh, not less important than the one of 1971? Well, I, I, I'm not sure if it was identical to 71, I, I, because uh, the... A lot of the problems then were just Europe and the, the, uh, the United States and Canada, mm-hmm. uh, the financial woes, although I do admit you know, Latin America was having a, a lot of financial issues at the time. Um, what I, uh, the, the big concern about the currency war or the fear of a currency war now is it's very broad-based. There's m- many, many countries who want to be the first to drop the value of their currency. And... Uh, I'm sure with this recent run-up in the euro, the Europeans are just going to be priced out of the market, and uh, and uh, they've got to be tearing their hairs, hair out. Um, and, you know, in many ways, uh, you know, I, I could argue that the uh, euro should be a weaker currency than the U.S. dollar, but right now it's fashionable to beat up on the U.S. dollar, largely because, you know, the, a lot of the media coverage and the really the, the current focus, but I, I think sooner or later that will shift back to Europe, and it may already be happening, because I see Euro has corrected quite substantially today. But I... uh, having said that, I still, yeah, I'm still very, very concerned about this currency or potential currency war uh, heating up, because it could get ugly and it could get disastrous if um, the politicians and the central banks don't take a you know step back, take a deep breath, and uh, just and, and take a pragmatic look at it rather than a political look. And mm-hmm. this is what they should be doing. They shouldn't be politicians. They should be good, solid economists. Mm-hmm. Uh, we uh, one of the issues I'd like to ask you about, and we've only got a couple of minutes here yet, Ian. But I want to ask you. Uh, Adrian Douglas pointed out that for every something like 43 uh, ounces of paper trade in the futures markets, and maybe he included in that the ETF markets as well, there's only one ounce of gold available. If people really wanted to take possession of all of the paper gold that's out there, uh, we would see, according to Adrian and Adrian's view, and I'd like to get your take on this, an exponential rise in the price of gold. Would you agree with that? Uh, yes, I, I think it would be one of the forces that could uh, push uh, gold higher because, you know, over the last 20 or 30 years, uh, the markets have been conditioned and weaned on paper markets and without any physical assets behind it. And a you know, piece of paper and a physical asset are two different things. You know, it may uh, technically give you title, but if you get a rush on a commodity and everybody wants a redemption or, you know, to convert that piece of paper into a physical piece of gold somewhere, I think it would definitely be very problematic. And uh, I, I think um, if you look at most of the time, the, um, the spot markets, the physical spot, the real gold price 
actually is trading at a bit of a premium uh, to the futures price most of the time now. Um, that, yeah. That's on the nearby months. Uh-huh. So, you know, it, it is slightly what we call backwardated, and we have a backwardation in the market. Um, it's been out there for some months right now, and for anybody uh, to buy uh, gold, uh, physical gold, you do have to pay a small premium over the published price, because mm-hmm. published price is very much a paper market. Yes, that's the notional world price, but to convert it, you, you do have to pay a premium. Indeed. In fact, uh, there's one report that I just read today about uh, some fairly large unnamed person uh, converting their ETF gold into real gold. And apparently this one uh, ETF provided that, but this was the first time anyone has taken advantage of it. They had to pay a 4% premium. And then, of course, there's transportation cost of that gold. There's also storage cost of that gold as well. So that's probably a disincentive to doing that. But let's let's look at it uh, from the point of view of those who are concerned concerned about not enough gold to go around in in an environment when they're printing endless amounts of paper, then you could understand why there could be a rush out the door. Uh, It's not inconceivable, is it, Ian? No, it's not. And and over the years, I have seen gold being squeezed or get into squeeze uh, type situations where literally we've had to fill up uh, 747 uh, planes and fly it from, say, Switzerland to New York to satisfy a squeeze, but right now every refinery is just uh, working 24-7 around the clock trying to crank out physical gold because that is the product everybody wants. They do not want the paper. Well, unfortunately, uh, that's all the time we have, uh, Ian, now. I know we could go on for a long time. Plenty more to talk about. We'll have to have you on again sometime very soon. But we are out of time right now, so uh, I'm going to have to say goodbye, and and, uh, let's get together again sometime soon, all right? Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you, Jay. Thank you. Thank you for being with me. Folks, don't go away because we're going to have Mike Larson of the Weiss Group. He's going to be with us to talk about the housing markets, the interest rate uh, environment and so forth. Many exciting and very, very important things to talk to uh, uh, talk about with Mike Larson. So don't go away. We'll be right back. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Millrock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Millrock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Peck, Ballet, Inmet, Finross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Millrock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. 
Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer-long by 20-kilometer-wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open-pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Brigus is also advancing its gold fields project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. Revolution Resources Corp. is a publicly trading exploration company that trades under the symbol RV on the TSX Exchange. Led by an experienced management team with a track record for discoveries, Revolution has initiated drilling on the company's newly acquired Champion Hills Gold Project in North Carolina. Revolution is focused on making a world-class discovery in an established gold belt, and with over $5 million in the Treasury, Revolution is effectively positioned to do so. Please visit www.revolutionresourcescorp.com for further information. As regular listeners to this show know, I am very bullish on gold and especially gold mining stocks. One of my favorite gold mining companies is Metanor Resources Traded Toronto and the Pink Sheets. This is a new gold producer. It is using cash flows from its Barry Mine in Quebec to finance growth of that mine and to put the world-famous Quebec Bachelor Lake Mine back into production. This stock has been recommended by my newsletter because I do believe it holds extraordinary upside price potential with relatively low levels of risk. Visit Metanor's website at metanor.ca or subscribe to my newsletter for more information. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Text stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Again, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show and making this the top show on the Voice America Business Channel. Of course, we always want to thank our sponsors for making this show financially viable. And for the second hour today, our sponsors are Crocodile Gold, Barkerville, 
uh, Gold, uh, Mill Rock, Metanor, Revolution Resources, Brigus Gold, and Golden Minerals. Well, I'm really pleased to have Mike Larson uh, with me today. He is uh, one of many excellent writers and contributors to the Weiss Group. I really enjoy uh, I really enjoy reading the Weiss Group's uh, ed- uh, viewpoints, the various the various writers who specialize in different areas and. Uh, uh, we'll ask Mike when we start talking to him how they can avail themselves to to this wonderful uh, group of inf- uh, this information that comes from der- various different sources. But Mike uh, has uh, been really uh, has been involved in a little bit of everything in the decades since he's been following the interest rate markets primarily and housing and mortgage markets. Those are the areas of his expertise. In 1998, uh, he watched the bond markdown, a uh, meltdown, I should say, uh, which forced the Federal Reserve to step in and help bail out long-term capital management. Very traumatic point in time for the markets at that time. The great surge in interest rates of the late 1990s and the colossal collapse that began in 2001. We remember the tech bubble and the collapse of that market. Uh, Then the biggest housing bubble in modern U.S. history, perhaps in the history of mankind, I would suggest, aided and abetted by some of the most reckless, I would say ridiculous, mortgage lending ever. Mike got his start tracking the financial markets at Bloomberg News. And I might say I'm a big fan of Bloomberg, even though most of their ideas don't necessarily reflect uh, my views. But nonetheless, Bloomberg is an excellent uh, organization. So Mike got his start there. And even while he was still in college and he graduated from Boston University with a bachelor's of science degree in journalism and a BA degree in English in 1998 and went to work uh, for bankrate.com. And there he learned uh, something about the mortgage and interest rate markets um, inside and out. And now there's always something going on in the interest rate markets. And I certainly want to get uh, Mike's view on the interest rate markets in a minute. I uh, just should mention that uh, he joined the Weiss Research Group in 2001 and has worn a number of hats in that company, both analyst, writer, trader, uh, editor, and he shares his insiders or his insights with subscribers uh, like you uh, as a contributing, really as a contributing editor to Money and Markets uh, with an associate uh, uh, editor of Safe Money. Welcome, Mike, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Hey, glad to be here. I'm really glad to have you. Now, before we get started, just so people can, uh, so I don't, I don't want to forget this. How can people um, avail themselves to Money and Markets, uh, that publication that comes from the Weiss Group? Sure. What they can do is just go to moneyandmarkets.com with the and spelled out. Um, we have a, a daily. We have a different uh, group of roster of editors that that, that fill the uh, void on a different day. My my day happens to be Friday, and that's where I cover what's going on in the interest rate and real estate markets. I just write about what's going on in housing, write about what's driving the interest rate markets, how that affects the stock market, and so on. So people can sign up. They can uh, just put their email address in there, get a, a you know free daily email that that gives them the information on what's going on. Again, and my day is Friday, but we have other editors that cover the commodities market and the currency markets on different days. So they get a wealth of information, and it's all free. Yeah, it's it's excellent. Uh, it, it really is, and I I must say that I read most of uh, your articles and the other articles, and you're every mostly like you would contribute something once a week, generally on Friday. Is that it? Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, now, one of the things I do appreciate about your group is the diversity of opinion. And I know, as you we were talking before we went on the air, that you uh, sort of specialize in, in mortgage markets, the interest rate markets, the housing markets, which make perfect sense. Uh, you know, Brian Rich, who we've had on this show, has talked about the, um, the currency markets. I really enjoy his, his views. We had Sean Broderick, who's talked about uh, the commodities and so forth. You, uh, you people seem to be encouraged to 
to share views. And, and that's something I think is really important because so much of what we get is sort of you have a company viewpoint, right? Uh, from down on high, uh, management decides that, you know, what the truth is going to be. But you guys seem to have an ability to, to share ideas, and I think that's very healthy. Well, thank you. You know, I think, again, each of us sort of specializes in a different part of the capital markets, and we each come from different backgrounds, and so we all, you know, we tend to have diverse opinions. We like to, to stay focused on what we're, we're, you know, the most specialized in, but it doesn't mean we're not going to be talking around the water cooler and debating these issues uh, as the days go on. Absolutely. Well, to, to me, your area of expertise is probably the most important in terms of the U.S. economy right now. Interest rates are seem to be, in my way of thinking, ridiculously low. Uh, they're trying to to revive the housing market at a time when there's so much uh, overhang, so many uh, you know, so many people can't pay their mortgages. Uh, that seems to be really quite deflationary, and yet the bat- the Fed is battling and trying to get things going again by pumping huge amounts of money into the system. We have people in your shop that might lean towards the deflation side, others towards the inflation side. Where do you come down on that uh, on that debate? Around the water cooler, perhaps? Sure. Well, I tend to look at it as, as a tale of two economies. You have the, the what I call the real economy, uh, where companies are making goods, people are buying them on store shelves, uh, you know, all the job, people are being hired, houses are being bought and sold. The, the real economy, and then you have the asset economy, where paper assets, whether it's stocks, bonds, uh, what have you, are, are being traded back and forth. What the Fed is doing right now by flooding the system with with easy money and now all this talk of QE2 doing it you know a second time after the first round of quantitative easing the Fed is pumping money into what I believe is just leaking into the asset markets and leaking out abroad uh, thanks to the falling dollar. So you're getting inflation in commodities, you're getting inflation in many paper assets, but that money isn't really driving real economic improvement down on the ground. I mean, the Fed can print money, it can't print jobs. So what's happening is companies that are uncertain about uh, what, the, you know, what their tax burden is going to be, they're uncertain about the regulatory environment, they don't see a lot of core demand for their goods and, and, and all that. They're not hiring a lot. They're not out there building new factories. The banks are sitting on a lot of this money and using it to speculate in the asset markets. Um, so that's good for some of the banks out there. But, again, it's not doing a heck of a lot for the guy on Main Street. So I'd say it's almost a deflationary environment for, for the guy on Main Street, and it's an inflationary environment in the asset markets. Well, indeed, and to the extent that this hot money, this money that's created out of nothing, goes into the commodity markets, it might be even – I'm just talking here. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are. I'm wondering if it might not be even more deflationary for the guy on Main Street because he's going to have to pay more for his energy. He's going to have to pay more maybe for his uh, his food and other materials. Um, so any thoughts on that? It seems to be a redistribution of wealth once again from those that create the, the wealth, the farmers, the miners, the manufacturers, the inventors, people that actually do things that are worthwhile for human beings, from those folks to the Wall Street guys. Now, absolutely. You if you, again, you can kind of think of, I guess, good inflation and bad inflation. Bad inflation is where your costs go up if you're a company or, or your costs go up for you and I when we go to the grocery store or we fill up our tanks or whatever, but it, we're not making it back in wages. We, because of high unemployment, we don't have the ability to go there and demand higher wages. Uh, companies aren't raising wages or hiring a lot of workers. So you just end up with, with more cost pressure, but no income, uh, no commensurate in, income gains to offset that. And I think that's what we have right now. It's not sort of the you know, quasi-good inflation that we had in the 1990s where, you know, sure, commodity prices and what have you for part of the 90s were going up. Real estate was going up at a reasonable rate, but incomes were keeping pace, so it was kind of the best of all worlds. You didn't have a debt deflation, but at the same time, the guy in Main Street was making enough money, and it was keeping up with those rising costs. 
Um, and again, what the Fed can do is it can influence the asset side of things. It can you know, create some of this cost inflation, and clearly it has over the last several weeks with all this QE2 talk, but they can't go out there and print jobs. They're, they can't go out there and hire a million people. They can't go out there and convince uh, companies to, to raise wages when they know that they can, if one guy quits, they can go hire five people you know, right off the unemployment line. So unfortunately, the Fed's creating, in my opinion, almost the worst of both worlds. Uh, you get this inflation in, what, in, in fuel, you get this inflation in, in, in wheat and soybeans and corn and on and on, but you don't get any improvement in the real economy. So that's kind of where I, I picture us right now. So they take, uh, they take food and energy out of the inflation mix, and Bernanke tells us that we don't have enough inflation. We have to have more to get us back on track. It's, again, it's really unfortunate. Um, it, it's a situation where the, the Fed, by debasing the value of the dollar uh, through its actions, is just driving up the cost for, for you know, not just people who travel overseas and have to pay more uh, when, they, when they're overseas, but you know, right here at home because of the impact it has on, on dollar-denominated commodities. So, uh, you know, and at the same time, of course, there's always the impact on savers. I mean, when you, have, when you cut interest rates to near zero, uh, you know, if somebody goes out and buy, buys a three-month Treasury bill for a couple basis points or they get a one-year CD, for maybe you know, half a percentage point or a percentage point, um, you know, that, that person has to save more to generate the same income. So I actually would argue some of the Fed's actions may be having a perverse impact in that you have borrowers that are somewhat risk, or excuse me, savers that are risk averse. You have uh, you know, the aging of America. They're looking to generate some income from their investments, but they're scared by what they saw happen in the stock market a couple years ago. And, and so they're, they're trying to stick with fixed income and other quote-unquote safer investments. Well, they can't generate anything. I mean, you know, the, a million-dollar portfolio with a, at a 1% interest rate, you do the math. They're hardly earning anything. So I think oh, that's I part of the reason people are actually socking away more money. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. And, of course, um, uh, and of course you know, the, the people that, like my parents who have saved all their lives for retirement now uh, are having a hard time making ends meet so that the bankers, I guess, can, can go off and, and keep their expensive homes on, on the south shore of Long Island or whatever. But in any event, you know, uh, I'd like to switch gears just a little bit here. We're hearing a lot about a moratorium on foreclosures. You know, the, the, home, the housing market, uh, well, well, could you just go into that a little bit? What's behind this, this, this talk about uh, a moratorium on, on foreclosures? Sure. Well, I think, first of all, you know, let's stipulate that there was a ton of sloppy work being done. Uh, I mean, originators weren't, you know, they were taking loan applications from people, you know, who had lousy credit, who were lying about their jobs. They, they, you know, they were getting paid on commissions to make loans, so they didn't care. They knew that that loan was just going to be turned around and bought by some bank and then packaged into a mortgage-backed security, and it was going to disappear uh, into some, some investor's portfolio in China or what have you. Um, there's sloppy work up and down the pipeline, from the originators of these loans to the underwriters to the regulators who didn't look over the bank shoulders, to the borrowers who took on risky loans. I mean, up and down, it was just dumb behavior. Well, what's happening now is a lot of the ultimate investors uh, that bought those mortgages are now, are now combing through. I mean, they lost a lot of money. The pension funds and the, the PIMCOs of the world lost a lot of money on those, those pools of mortgage loans. So they're going back and they're saying, well, you know, we, Mr. Bank X, when you sold me this mortgage-backed security, you said, you know, 30% of these loans only were non-owner-occupied, uh, meaning they weren't investor loans, that people lived there. And you've told me that, you know, on average, the, the loan-to-value of these mortgages is only 80%. And, you know, they're going to, and, and they're finding out that in a lot of cases, uh, the banks just lied or the work wasn't done. I mean, you know, the bank said, oh, sure, I will accept this application because it says owner-occupied, but why is this guy's mailing address, you know, 
in, in another state. I mean, they weren't paying attention. Um, yeah. so the, the investors are going back, and they're trying to put these loans back to the banks. They're saying, you know what? You sold me this pool of mortgages. There's a thousand mortgages in the security. I went back and found out a hundred of them were fraudulent. You have to buy these back from me and make me, you know, make me whole on my losses. And the mm-hmm. banks are, you know, the banks are scared because that could, you know, they, they don't have a heck of a lot of capital and money sitting around to absorb those losses. So that's one thing that's going on. The other thing that's going on is just establishing the chain of title on some of these. And, you know, mortgages were made and then sold and then resold over and over again. And there's a lot of just paperwork that goes into it. I mean, you literally have uh, low-paid employees going to file documents at every county courthouse, you know, in the state of Florida, the state of California, or what have you. Um, in a lot of cases, the banks just cut corners. They didn't make sure all that paperwork was taken care of because they were in such a hurry to just produce more loans to sell them off and so on. So now the the borrowers who are at risk at foreclosure are hiring attorneys and they're going back and they're saying, you know, can can you this bank can't even prove he owns my loan. So how can he kick me out of my house? Mm-hmm. And so you're seeing uh, this talk of moratoriums is, all right, let's halt the process or at least slow it down so we can figure out do these banks really own these loans? Do these borrowers really have to be foreclosed on? Uh, and, and what's the situation there? So there's two big issues that, that everybody's dealing with. And really, it's hard to quantify what the overall losses are going to be and what the overall delays are going to be in the foreclosure process as a result. Oh, it's, uh, you have to wonder. I mean, it would seem to make good politics to put a moratorium on foreclosures. I believe it was Bank of America that first was the first bank to come out and say they were, they were voluntarily uh, not going to foreclose. Yeah. Has there been any movement on that as Bank of America? It seems to me I heard today in the news that Bank of America may have reversed or have taken a, a look at their, at their paperwork and suggested, well, we don't think we're that, that bad off and we're going to sure. start foreclosing okay. again. Is that... Of the two issues out there, the, the foreclosure moratorium and this whole put, mortgage putback issue, I happen to think that the moratorium and the paperwork stuff is the less severe. I mean, the reality is the underlying economics are the same. You have borrowers that took out loans, they couldn't pay, they can't pay now, they're going to lose their homes. So this mm-hmm. delay is really about establishing the paper trail. And that's really, I, I like to refer to that as the great uh, you know, Lawyer Employment Act of 2010, 2011. <laughs> You're going to have yeah. lots of law firms that are going to make a lot of money and they're going to charge the banks to go back and reestablish you know, comb through that whole legal chain, and that's going to that's gonna pay a lot of lawyers a lot of money, but ultimately it doesn't change the underlying economics. These people can't stay in their homes. They lost their job. You know, they're upside down. They're going to lose it. So it's just going to extend the timeline. I think that we will work through that problem. The real issue, though, is on the other side of the ledger, and that's, again, you know, if the banks were really shoddy in, in, in putting together these pools of mortgages, if they went out and said, you know, of these 1,000 loans in this pool, only uh, 10% are not owner-occupied, but it turns out 50% were, well, that, that the investor in that pool can go back and say, you lied, look, you know, yeah. you, or you should have known. I mean, even if the bank didn't, you know, didn't lie on purpose, I mean, again, if somebody files a loan application, they say they live in the house, but they say, send all my mail to, you know, Timbuktu, what do you think happened? They didn't live there, you know? So right. that's what we're that's what we're dealing with on the other side of the ledger. Well, the banks uh, should have known, and they said they did know. So therefore, they could be is it uh, liable criminally or at least civilly? Well, I think it would be uh, it would basically be I don't know it would be a court issue, probably a civil court issue, and it would be they would be forced to repurchase a lot of these loans, and if they do, uh, they would have to repurchase those loans out of these loan pools at face value. When the value of those loans, if they had to turn around and sell them, is much below that. So, bottom line is. They might have to, you know, buy back a $200,000 mortgage at a $200,000 face value, where if they want to sell it, it's really only 150, worth 150,000. So yeah. the real question is, can these investors force these banks to buy 
back a large number of these loans? And if so, uh, can the banks afford to do that without, you know, more government aid or, you know, raising more capital or what have you? And I've seen estimates of the size of this problem anywhere from, you know, five, six, seven billion dollars, which would be completely manageable, on up to, you know, 50, 60, 70 billion, which is a bigger, you know, bigger ball of wax. So uh, I think that's what's being sorted out. That's one of the reasons the market got hit so hard uh, was fears of Bank of America having to buy back a bunch of these loans. Mm-hmm. And limited capital to handle that, of course. Now, it, it would make sense that, um, from a political point of view, I believe, uh, I, in fact, I think the Obama administration may have made some noise about uh, or, or put out some trial balloons in terms of um, in terms of uh, supporting a moratorium across the country. And then I saw Judge Napolitano on, on one of the television channels on, on Fox, I guess it was, saying, well, wait a minute, the federal government can't do that. This is a state's issue. This is no, an issue the, that has- the real problem is um, you, you've got the political concerns and you've got the real economic concerns. I mean, put yourself in the shoes of the Obama administration. You don't want to look like you're supporting the banking industry and trying to speed up the foreclosure process. I mean, that doesn't play well on Main Street. At the right. same time, you've you know funneled tens of billions of dollars into the banking industry via TARP and, and, and so on. Uh, the Federal Reserve is hip deep in, the, in these mortgage-backed securities through the bailout of Bear Stearns. And, and other and other avenues. Um, so if, if you do anything that delays the foreclosure process too long, you're driving up the losses to these banks, which raises the specter of having to throw even more money at them. So it's really a catch-22. They, on, in theory or on the face of it, politically, a foreclosure moratorium sounds great. But when it comes down to the, the financial impact, you could actually be hurting the banking industry more. You could be talking about more banking losses that they can't afford. And where else are they going to get the money? The banks are already, you know, uh, in for a dime, in for a dollar with the government. So that means you may have to infuse Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac with more money, Bank of America with more money. You never know. So I think it's a very, very tough uh, way that, that the government has to kind of sort out what it wants to do here. You, uh, I believe, Mike, you live in Florida, is that right? Yeah, I sure do, South Florida. Mm-hmm. And how how is the Florida market, because it was one of the most speculative markets of all, I think, during the good times, and, and how is it shaking out now? You know, the, the thing that I would point out in markets like mine and other of the very hard-hit regions is that the economics of buying a house actually make a heck of a lot more sense now. I mean, in 2005, 2006, you, you, you could see a house selling for a million bucks uh, that would have a mortgage payment for, you know, I don't know, $6,000 or something when you figure it out at a monthly basis, and you could mm-hmm. see comparable properties renting for 2500 I mean, it made zero sense whatsoever that the, the, the cost of owning was so far out of line with the cost of renting, and it was so far out of line with incomes. I mean, you're talking about median home prices that were seven, eight, nine times the, the, you know, the median income. It, just, it made no sense. Um, and that's, why, that's one of the reasons why prices collapsed. It was just unsustainable. Now you go out, and if you, you look at just local listings here where I live, and you know, figure out, okay, what would it cost me on principal and interest and tax and insurance or whatever to own this townhouse versus what would it cost me to rent, the numbers are very, very comparable. And in some cases, owning actually makes more financial sense. Now, uh, you've, correct, you've corrected, I guess it's my, it's my way of saying you've corrected the financial imbalances that existed. But at the same time, it's a totally different lending environment. The standards are much tighter. Um, you know, people need higher down payments. They need better credit. Uh, all, a lot of loans that w- previously would have sailed through aren't qualifying. So, and, and then you have a lot of uncertainty. People, um, you know, not only are they uncertain with their jobs, 
locally here. I mean, Florida's unemployment rate is, is close to the highest level in three decades. Um, you also have just uh, really people who are once burned, twice shy, uh, just yeah. like they were chasing real estate when the economics made no sense because psychologically it seemed like the right thing to do. Now, financially, it makes a ton more sense, but everybody was burned. If they weren't foreclosed on, they might have known of a family member who was. If they didn't flip real estate and lose a ton of money, they, they know one of their friends at work who did that. So it, people, there's not much buying going on. The prices aren't collapsing. They're roughly stable, but you're not seeing hardly any, you're seeing hardly any buying, and you're really seeing a market that's just sort of stagnant out there. And I think that's what we're going to be dealing with for some time. I mean, this was uh, the bubble to end all bubbles, so to expect it to be resolved in a, in a quick period of time, I think, is just naive. How much time do we have to go yet? Well, you know, locally, again, in, in, in many markets in the country, uh, you know, the market peaked out in late 2005, early 2006. It took some areas longer than that, but that's roughly when this thing started. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're going on five years now. Um, I would think that we're going to be looking at a market where we are – we're going to see sales rates generally stabilize in this area. We're going to see pricing maybe lose another, you know, single digits from here on a nationwide basis over the, this, the course of the next 12 to 18 months. But we're gradually returning to what I think will just be a normal, quiet market. Uh, again, no new collapse but no vigorous recovery. If you look at past housing market recoveries, you tended to see construction snap back. You tended to see sales pick up uh, pretty nicely once interest rates were cut and the economy picked back up. But this market's totally different. This is a U or almost an L-shaped uh, recovery, and I put the word recovery yeah. in quotes right now. Uh, we're going you know, to be in this hangover period for quite some time, a few years at least. I guess if you can put up with hurricanes, then, <clears throat> excuse me, perhaps Florida, South Florida would be a, a great uh, place to look around for a, for a nice home. And again, like I said, the, 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 the financials of it, the economics, I mean, if you're buying, you plan to stay put, you're securing your job, you know, you just want a roof over your head because you've got an expanding family or something, it's actually not a bad time to buy, especially with interest rates where they are. But you have to know you're staying put, you have to be able to qualify, and you have to make sure that you're securing your own finances. Well, let's talk about interest rates for for a couple of minutes here. Um, to what extent do you think the long rates, let's say the long bond rate, the 30-year treasury or, or even 20, 10-year treasuries, what, to what extent are they being affected by, by monetary policy? Sure. Well, I mean, you clearly saw the shorter-term interest rates, two-year notes, five-year notes, and to some degree, 10-year note yields, all uh, falling as a result of all this QE, this QE talk from the Fed, as well as the, the double-dip economic concerns out there. I mean, you saw a big rally in bonds. 10-year Treasury note yield went from around 4% earlier in 2010 to, to just under 2.5% recently. Um, but what I'm starting to see now is you're seeing, especially at the long end of the Treasury curve, the 30 years that you mentioned, you're starting to see, despite more QE talk from the Fed, uh, long bond yields actually have bottomed and are starting to head a little bit higher. I mean, nothing dramatic, but, you know, a 30-year Treasury yield in late August was around was just under three and a half percent, and it just tagged four percent two days ago. So you mm. can see that that the the bond market is starting to get a little concerned. I think about the, the potential inflationary impact of what the Fed's doing. I think you know the, the bond market is sniffing out that with gold going up every day, with you know, crude oil going up every day, soybeans, wheat, the whole nine yards. Uh, it's starting to get concerned about whether the Fed is just printing money willy nilly and, and, and printing too much, and whether that's going to impact, for example, future inflation or even uh, foreign demand for our bonds. And we have to remember that as a debtor nation, our, uh, greater than 50% of all of our outstanding treasuries are held overseas. If we continue to debase the dollar and we cause an inflation problem, it's uh, possible that countries like China and Japan that have been buying uh, you know, billions and billions of dollars of our bonds might stop doing that, might you know, ease up on the pace of buying them. 
and that could hurt bond prices. So I think investors are, are wary of, of pouring money into the long end of the Treasury curve at these levels. Uh, you have to wonder a little bit with the uh, currency wars going on right now, uh, the United States uh, pumping money, huge amounts of money, printing money. Uh, other countries also very worried about uh, their loss of export uh, exports as a result of uh, uh, their, their currency strengthening against the dollar. Uh, it seems to me that we're looking at something akin to what I read about in the 1930s with um, sort of a currency, uh, sort of a beggar thy neighbor uh, currency devaluation policy on the part of almost everybody. Everybody's trying to beat each other out by cheating, in a sense, yeah. by yeah. cheating on their currency. No, Where you're, is you're, you're right on target there. I, you know, I, I, you can call it a currency war or a money war, whatever you want to call it. Um, but n no doubt, uh, you know, nobody wants to have the, the strong currency hot potato. The Europeans don't want it. The Brits don't want it. The Japanese don't want it. We certainly don't want it. I mean, the strong dollar policy is a joke. So I, what you're having, uh, and the, the, the reality is you can't, you know, not everybody can devalue their currency at the same time. Currencies go up and down against each other. So I think that what you're dealing with here, what you're starting to see now is blowback from, from overseas uh, countries that are, are getting upset with the Fed's policy. I mean, if you've got a country like Brazil or China, uh, you know, Southeast Asia, some of these smaller countries, Malaysia, Singapore, and so on, their domestic economies are doing fairly well, uh, and the Fed is exporting all this cheap money. We're printing all this cheap money here, and instead of it creating jobs and factories and so on in the U.S. economy, it's all flooding those overseas markets. So their currencies are going up, their bonds are going up, their real estate values are going up, uh, which sounds good, but it's having a big inflationary impact. So many of these foreign countries are, are trying to push back. They're trying to you know, intervene in the currency market to keep the dollar from, uh, from declining too fast. They're trying to uh, put on capital controls to, to stamp out real estate speculation. They're raising interest rates, um, you know, but it's not really doing much good. So there's, there are a lot of negative side effects to what the Fed's doing, um, you know, both abroad and domestically. And I think that's starting to come to a head. And it may be a case where you see the dollar actually stabilize and start to rise like you did today as a result of, of this, this pushback from overseas. Mm -hmm. Well, definitely, we saw it after the Lehman Brothers collapse. We saw a strengthening, a stronger dollar, as I think a lot of uh, short covering and lend, or, you know, when the margin clerk calls, you have to sell whatever you're able, go back and buy the currency. And the dollar has probably got more debt out there than any other currency. So it's sort of perverse in a way, isn't it? That when things really go to hell in a handbasket, the dollar get, can get stronger. It sure is. But, I, you know, and again, I think longer term, I'm a dollar bear. I think that, uh, and I'm a, I'm a gold bull. I think that you need protection, not just from what's going on here in printing money in the U.S., but again, it's happening in Japan, it's happening in England, it, it's happening all in, in many parts of the world. Uh, but I do think in the short term, again, there, there's probably there's likely to be political pushback, there's likely to be uh, monetary pushback from some of these central banks overseas. So I think we could be seeing a, you know, a, temporary, uh, a temporary bottom here in, in, in the dollar and maybe a, a decent-sized correction in gold. Mm -hmm. Well, Mike, you know, I think it's uh, through other, you, you sort of alluded to this a little earlier, that when we've had corrections or when the economy's come out of a recession in the past, it's, it's, uh, the housing market has remained strong. I think we're, we're having something like less than 500,000 housing starts a year, whereas we used to have something like 2 million on average. Is that, does that sound right to you? No, absolutely. Um, you know, in the most recent month, it was a little better. It was up around 600,000. But we've been broadly stuck in this range of around 500 to 650,000 housing starts in this country uh, for basically for the last year and a half, two years. Now, again, when you think that we were building more than 2 million houses a month at an annualized rate at the peak of the bubble, and even, even in healthy non-bubble times, you know, 
cities and so on, you were easily seeing a million and a half, you know, some odd units being built every month. So these numbers are severely depressed. And again, there, there's no vigorous recovery in construction coming out of this downturn, uh, which is counter to what you've seen in the past. In the past, You've seen housing starts fall as interest rates rise, heading into a recession, but then the Fed cuts interest rates, mortgage rates go down, borrowers respond, and construction picks up relatively quickly. Uh, the problem here, and the reason why it isn't happening, is because we have this huge mountain, this huge overhang of distressed used property. I mean, the builder, what kind of builders are going to go out there and build a ton of new homes when they're competing sometimes in the same subdivision against 10 homes they sold a couple years ago to some borrower who really couldn't afford that house who's now in foreclosure? Um, and buyers are saying, well, I'm, I'm not going to buy this, you know, fresh off the lot kind of new house when I can buy the same model, essentially, that looks almost as good for, you know, 40% less. It's almost like when you go to the car dealership and they have a bunch of, if they lease too many vehicles a couple of years ago, you get a brand, you know, a nearly new car that's off lease for a heck of a bargain instead of going and buying the new car lot, you know, new car off the lot. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm wondering how this economy is going to ever gain any, any strength, um, if you know we don't manufacture too much of anything, even Boeing, we man, we have Boeing, but I understand about ninety percent of of Boeing is imported parts. Uh, so we don't have much in the way of exports. We don't manage. We don't uh, we don't manufacture much of anything. What is going to drive this economy then if there's no housing market? I don't see where the hope is for some kind of sustainable long term growth. Well, I think what's going to have to happen is we're going to have to get out of this uh, uh, this sort of unhealthy relationship that we have, where you know we spend and borrow, and Asia produces and saves. Um, that you know you've got this this unstable dynamic where you know we've exported all our jobs, all, and not all of them, but a large share of our jobs, our factories to China and other countries. Uh, you know they they buy our debt in return, and, and and you know that process works for a while. It has worked for a number of years. But now, um, again, when you see long-term structural high unemployment in this country because we don't have that manufacturing base, uh, we don't have something that we can point to next and say, aha, this is going to be the source of our next growth, something's got to give. Something's, there's got to be some rebalancing where we gradually start to build more here, they gradually start to spend more, uh, you know, and that, that helps to rebalance the world economy. And I think politi- I think you've seen uh, the administration and both sides of the aisle talk to some degree to that extent, but the policies to get us from, from A to B aren't, aren't really being implemented because they're politically painful. So I think that the reality is, uh, we're just not going to have a vigorous recovery anytime soon. It's going to be, unfortunately, a, a, an economy that, that tends to have high unemployment for some time while we work off these excesses. I mean, we had you know, twin bubbles in, in stocks and real estate over the course of a decade. And you look mm-hmm. at what happened in Japan. Um, you know, they had the same thing in the late 80s and very early 1990s. And you know, 20 years later, they're still paying the price. I hope that's not our economic future. But uh, you know, there are some concerns that we could end up in a Japan-like situation over time. Well, certainly there's differences between ourselves and Japan, and unfortunately we only got a couple of minutes, so I, I guess there's not ta- time to get into that topic today, perhaps another time. But So what would you suggest investors do, given the situation? You can't make anything on interest rates. You know, I, I know there's some utilities out there that might look fairly safe that you can get 6-7% on, perhaps. Uh, but what should people do with their money these days? Sure. there are. You mentioned utilities. I tend to like that sector. Um, you know, steady businesses, decent yields. 
yields not bad in terms of risk profile. So there, there are utilities out there that are, are worth looking at. There are some, uh, you know, corporate bonds, better credit quality corporate bonds, or consumer uh, consumer non discretionary things like the food makers and so on, who are who are are doing fairly well. I mean, you look at a Coca Cola today, and that was one of the few stocks that was actually doing well in the market. Um, those kinds of names, I think, are good, safer, decent yielding investments. I mean, let's be honest, some some stocks are yielding plenty more than Treasuries out there, and you have the possibility of capital gains over the long term. So, I, with Treasuries being somewhat overvalued, in my opinion, I'd be inclined to go that route. Um, but I would also keep a high level of cash. I mean, again, this is a this is a market that the risk levels are high. We've just had this extraordinary rally fueled by a bunch of of, of money printing talk out of the Fed. Um, but you know, when when it gets down to things like earnings and all, after you've had stocks run up so much, the, the possibility of big disappointments is out there. I mean, you look at you know what happened to IBM or Apple or some of these other stocks that have just taken off, and then all of a sudden the news is only really really good. It's not perfect, and bam, you lose you know 15% overnight. So you've got to be careful about uh, those kinds of, of landmines in this market. Um, and again, longer term, after a pullback, I'd be all I would be all over gold and, and silver for protection. I think, and I would you know look to reestablish dollar shorts at some point. But I think in the short term, that that game is probably a little extended. All right, very good. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. Tell our listeners once again where they can track money and markets. Sure, they can go to moneyandmarkets.com. Uh, my day on the rotation uh, of the editors is Friday, and you know that's where they can go and just sign up for a free email that keeps them updated on what's going on out there. I would recommend highly to our listeners that they do that. It's something that I do. I, I read virtually all of those missives that come through. They're, uh, they're free of charge, and there's lots of good information in there, lots of facts, and, and I think uh, very very good insights coming from the, from the analysts and the writers at uh, the Weiss Group. So I want to thank you very much, Mike, for being with us today, and I hope we can have you on again sometime. All the best to you and the rest of the guys there at, uh, and the girls at uh, the Weiss Group. Thank you very much. Thank you. Folks, don't go away. I'm going to be right back with my partner, Roger Wiegand, as soon as we come back from the commercial break. So don't go away. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. American Bonanza Gold's project, located in Arizona, is scheduled for production in 2010. American Bonanza Gold announced the positive results of its recent feasibility study at its 100% owned Copperstone Gold Mine. The mine is estimated to produce an average of 45,000 ounces of gold annually. At the current spot gold price, this will result in an IRR of 120%. Join the gold bull market. Invest in American Bonanza Gold. Visit the website at AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. 
The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Millrock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Millrock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Tech, Ballet, Inmet, Kinross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Millrock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. As regular listeners to this show know, I am very bullish on gold and especially gold mining stocks. One of my favorite gold mining companies is Metanor Resources, traded Toronto and the Pink Sheets. This is a new gold producer. It is using cash flows from its Berry Mine in Quebec to finance growth of that mine and to put the world-famous Quebec Bachelor Lake Mine back into production. This stock has been recommended by my newsletter because I do believe it holds extraordinary upside price potential with relatively low levels of risk. Visit Metanor's website at metanor.ca or subscribe to my newsletter for more information. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm here with Roger Wiegand, who's my partner um, and author of uh, Trader Tracks. Uh, Roger, welcome back. Nice to be here. Uh, we had a very uh, a very interesting market today. Uh, finally, prices have dropped for a change. I'm looking at gold down forty dollars, silver down a dollar five. Uh, the Dow is down 165, S and P down 18.8, Nasdaq down very big too. Uh, what's going on today? Well, it's a normal correction. Uh, the metals were overbought. Uh, the dollar was oversold, and what we saw today was a reversal. In addition to that, some things happened in the shares market, which were a little disconcerting for some of the investors. Uh, the biggest thing I saw in the market today was uh, PIMCO, BlackRock, and the Federal Reserve of New York are seeking the Bank of America to, to repurchase $47 billion in sour bonds they bought from Countrywide. I find it very interesting that the Federal Reserve Bank of New York is in on the deal. I think that's going to put immense pressure on Bank of America. Their stock went down today. Uh, they lost $7 billion on their financial report. And as you know, we have been um, recommending FAZ on, on the uh, options for next year. And I knew this stuff was coming, but I didn't expect this event today. $47 billion. Roger, have you any idea what uh, Bank of America's uh, equity standing is, how much equity they have? I don't know their equity standing, but I know that that could pretty much wipe out the bank. And the interesting thing about this whole thing is uh, most people who have been watching this stuff for about two years now are thinking that 90% of the really bad toxic loans are still stuck in the bank somewhere. 
And if that's true, most of these banks are, are generally insolvent, and where things are going next then would be nationalization of all the banks. Well, we're seeing uh, nationalization of the banks, possibly nationalization of the municipal municipalities. I, I saw somebody suggesting today that the Fed could also just go in and buy the municipal municipal bond markets out where there's problems, and, and we know that lots of local governments are having problems meeting their uh, making their ends meet. So, what is not to be nationalized, Roger? Are we what's what are well, we not? Yeah, how about, uh, what's not? How about the uh, junior gold companies, the senior gold companies, and uh, Perhaps the COMEX exchanges. <laughs> well, I'm just, I mean, you laugh. I, I, I think that this is, uh, this is problematic because I don't see any resemblance to free market capitalism here at all. If anything, what we're moving towards is a, is a socialist communist model that I, I think is, you know, would, would make a Thomas Jefferson roll over in his grave if he, if he had any idea what was going on. Um, so yeah, I mean, in fact, they've they've there've been some discussions about. Uh, I think Bernanke himself may have suggested uh, added gold mines to the mix. And let me let me just suggest that with the the potential for uh, a, a realignment of of currencies globally, um, you know, that may not be so far fetched. What are governments going to do? Do they actually own the gold? I saw some discussion, Roger, about. Um, uh, some some speculation, in fact, from the Germans that, in fact, uh, there's two-thirds of Germany's gold is in the United States, and there were some concerns that, in fact, the U.S. could just simply grab that gold if, if things really, you know, turned out a certain way. And and if we have to go back, and I my thinking is that we may very well have to go back to some sort of a gold-backed international currency regime at some point in the future, if for no other reason, the Chinese, the Indians, other countries that are now gaining wealth at the expense of the West, which is losing wealth, will be in the driver's seat at some point in time. Of course, we've got the military to beat the living hell out of anybody that challenges us, I suppose, as long as we can finance the military. But how long can we finance our military? And I know, I believe that you are, that you believe as a uh, as, uh, as uh, Mr. Larson just suggested, that long-term, the dollar is heading down. Uh, so if the dollar goes down, 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 can we afford this military that puts us in 140 different countries around the world? I don't think we can afford the military as it stands right now. Uh, we have troops in over 100 countries at this point. We're fighting wars on two or three fronts. Uh, things generally seem to be stagnant in the war front. Uh, they don't seem to be improving whatsoever. And the expense, not only in, in American lives, but in the billions of dollars that this country cannot afford, is just going right off the charts. I think that, believe it or not, somewhere along the line, the government is going to have to pull back some of these troops out of some of these places because they simply can't afford to pay for it. Well, you would think so, but, um, you know, I, I, again, this is the strategy. You know, how do you hang on to the dollar as the world's reserve currency when you're broke and when you can't produce anything and when you have to rely on other countries' savings to keep your military and your finances, uh, to, keep, to keep solvent? I, not that I believe we are solvent. I think we're totally insolvent. But as long as we have a military that can go around and threaten other countries, uh, for example, John Perkins told us on this show that he, he doesn't think it's an accident uh, that we went into a Iraq after Saddam uh, insisted on being paid for his oil in euros rather than dollars. But Roger, let me just shift gears briefly here. You think that this QE2 thing, uh, the talk, and it's almost a certainty that Mr. Bernanke is going to start printing money and 
uh, you know, in trillions of dollars, uh, that this could really add to uh, to create an inflation problem down the road for us. I think absolutely, Jay. And, and uh, further, I think that the QE2 thing has been well underway for quite some time over out on the edges. Uh, periodically, when an auction would, ha- would, be, would occur for notes or bonds, and when they couldn't sell all the paper, they would go back into what I would call uh, purgatory uh, in the Federal Reserve on the shelf. They would mark it sold, when in reality it was sitting there unsold but issued. And somewhere down the line they have ideas and hopes that they can sell it. Another overriding factor that's sitting behind this, when you consider that China and Japan have been the primary purchasers of all this paper, uh, now I'm looking at some very strong signals indicating that Hong Kong real estate is topping out. All right. If that thing breaks, that's going, to, that's going to dump over the stock markets in China. Hong Kong real estate this year is up 90%. And when I saw last week that one of their billionaires bought, spent a billion dollars on a high-rise building, which is his own house, I think that uh, that's, that's okay. the end of the game. Okay, Roger. Unfortunately, we got to go. I wanted to ask you about gold, your target, uh, and all that, but I know you're bullish long-term. A correction's underway. Folks, uh, next week, we're going to have with us David Franklin. He's the market strategist at Sprott Asset Management. You won't want to miss what David has to say. Uh, just want to thank uh, our the people that make this show logistically possible, starting with my senior executive producer, Tacey Trump, Ruben Columbe, my operations manager, Justin Jackman, Jackman my engineer, Thank you to all of you for making this show logistically possible. And so until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. again for listening to turning hard times into good times with jay taylor please join us again next tuesday at noon pacific time 3 p.m eastern time on the voice america business channel now the thing about time is that time is